Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 139 of Control the Controllables. Today we have a former world number five. Can I look up and he points at me and puts his hand very far down to say, you're really short. And then as if he's stepping on me and goes... (laughs) And it worked. He beat me 6-4. Yeah, and the difference was I asked the coaches, I want to play with him as often as I, as I can because he's gotten to me mentally. He's in my head and I need to get stronger. And you might recognize that voice. Those of you listening in America will, as an ESPN commentator, a tennis channel commentator, and someone who will come into your homes on a weekly basis He's also now the director of IMG Tennis Academy. He was a mixed doubles French Open champion. He was known to be the first person to play with a topspin forehand. It's Jimmy Arias who is coming to us. If you listen to episode 100 with Nick Boliteri, he talked about how Jimmy Arias was one of his first ever players at the academy and the impact that he had not only on the on the tennis academy but also tennis as a whole jimmy was a great guy to talk to i got so much valuable insight listening to his stories i could have done it all day it's a really entertaining episode so sit back and enjoy and i'm gonna pass you over to jimmy arias so jimmy arias a big welcome to control the controllables how are you doing i'm doing great thanks for having me it's a it's a pleasure to have you on. I've had I've had a couple of former guests that have mentioned your name a lot and said you have to get this guy on the podcast. One of them being Nick Boliteri, that I'm sure will go into some Nick stories. But as with this podcast, we do like to know where does this tennis passion start back in the day? It's funny because I almost don't remember the the story that I was told by my father was that I was five years old. And he was starting to try to learn how to play tennis. And he was playing with another beginner. And as you know, if two beginners are playing tennis together, basically the balls are flying all over the place and they can't actually keep a rally going. So they brought me along as a five-year-old to go and pick up the balls for them. So I ran and picked up the balls, I guess, for the practice. And then after it was over, my dad said, well, let him hit a try to hit a few. I had a Dunlop Max Ply 4 and 5 eighths wood racket that they gave me. And the story that my dad says is that they threw the ball to me and I was better than them at five right away. I was hitting it in the middle of strings and getting it in the court. And and so my dad immediately sort of became a crazy tennis parent. And I just played with him on the weekends. And then when I was seven years old, I was getting reasonably good, I guess. And he got me a lesson with a guy named Ian Fletcher, who had made fourth round of the Australian Open and he had moved to Buffalo. I'm from Buffalo, New York. He moved to Buffalo. So he was a famous coach in the area. Took a lesson and they told me, he told me shake hands with the racket as my forehand grip, which is kind of a continental, maybe Eastern forehand grip. I'd already been hitting with a semi-Western because I'm two foot three and it's just naturally for me, I'm holding it with that grip. But so he changed my grip to continental, told me to stand sideways, take the racket straight back hit and point the follow through at my target. And my dad is an electrical engineer. I came off the court and he didn't know anything about tennis, but he said, I asked him what he thought he's from Spain. So he had an accent. Um, and he said, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> How can you swing full speed and stop? That means you're slowing down when you're hitting. So he devised a forehand that I was supposed to have the racket head pointed up take it back with my left hand. The right hand is just going along for the ride. Um, so he wanted my right hand to be very loose and he wanted momentum. He wanted the racket head in motion. Um, 
And then he just said, I want you to let your arm go, finish wherever it finishes. And someday you'll learn how to control it, was basically what, what he this, said. Was this with a wooden racket? It was with a wooden racket, yes. And, and, how, it, and how did that feel with a wooden racket? I mean, my forehand was, look, by the time I was eight or nine, I was, I was already sort of the best. I played, when I was eight years old, old i met two 16 year old kids in the summer and i literally played people it's hard to believe but i played five sets in the morning with one of them he would take me to lunch bring me back the other one would come in the afternoon i play him five sets so i played 10 sets a day for an entire summer every day when i was eight years old with two 16 year olds both of them would come and we'd run a mile on the track so i did that for a whole summer and by the end of that summer i was the best eight-year-old in the u.s for sure um and then it just sort of snowball the career sort of snowball from there that's when i decided i was going to be number one in the world someday and and i was pretty sure of it which i don't understand exactly how i had that thought process but i did um and i think that's an important thing actually yeah absolutely i I thought i'd be number one in the world and i also knew i could do it i didn't make it but i knew i could do it at that stage um that's when it became a job a little bit for me was at eight years old and as I told you, I did have a crazy tennis parent too, who, when I would play, it's funny because I feel like today's kids, we've been told, my generation has been told that the most important thing for kids is their self-esteem. So we tell them they're doing great. You're unbelievable. Everything's yeah. great. And I think that fills them with fear to compete because deep down inside, they know they're not great and they don't want to show their parent they're not great or their coach that they're not actually great. So they'd rather not even compete. They just want to be fed balls and look good and, and feel good about their game, but they're afraid to actually compete. My dad went the opposite way. He told me every day how much I stink. Um, basically, we drive me nuts because he told me my little brother was better than me. I was number one in the U.S. My brother was like four in Buffalo. So I'd, I'd start getting, what are you talking about? Um, but it made me compete. I wanted to show him. It's almost like the opposite of instant gratification, isn't it? You know, we, yes. we're living in the world now of instant gratification, the kids expecting goods, greats, excellence, whereas it seems as if you had to fight for years and years and years to ever get any gratification from your dad. Did you ever get it? Unfortunately, no. That was the one part that always does bother me slightly. Um, he passed away. 15 years ago now. And even as he was dying, he wrote notes to each of the kids in the family. Nice flowery things to every kid except me. For me, he just said, Jimmy will be fine. And (laughs) that was it. And I was like, really? You couldn't have at least at the end said you did okay or give me something. He gave me nothing ever except you suck. And me trying to prove that I don't suck. And that was basically our our entire relationship in some ways. Maybe that's already the... getting into a psych. I mean, I'm, I need to go see a psychiatrist now after this <laughs> podcast. Go ahead. But maybe that's the biggest compliment he could have given you. The fact that he has said, Jimmy will be fine because, you know, I, I guess if he, if he felt that you wouldn't have been, if he felt that you didn't have the, the, the mental fortitude to be able to handle everything then. So maybe that's the best compliment that you can be given. But what was for changing my thinking. <laughs> well done. What's, what was his motivation? So you said, you know, obviously that, that day where you've turned up, you and, and the first thing that came in my head, were you good or were they just really bad? You know, on that first day when you when you started playing. But what was then his motivation? Was his motivation for you to make money for the family? Was his motivation for you to have fame? You know, what what was what was the driving force behind your dad? My dad's motivation, and he made this perfectly clear, was that he hated. He worked for a corporation. Um, He hated having bosses that he felt he was more intelligent than or more accomplished than they were. And he wasn't moving up necessarily in in the company the way he wanted to. And he didn't want me to go through that. So he actually saw that I had a talent um, and, you know, an athletic ability. And he wanted me to not have to answer to anybody that it was on me one way or the other, whether I became a great tennis player or not. The interesting thing is 
he did he did push me and I did get spankings and I got spankings even by scores. So he would tell me before a match, you need, I saw the kid play, you should beat him. Oh, and out. And if I beat him three and three, I was going to get a spanking for that situation. So people that knew us thought he's doing it for some of the motivations you said for the money or for, you know, that kind of stuff. But when I was, I turned pro when I was 16 and I signed a deal with Subaru and they gave me a new car every year for four years. That was part of the, the deal. Um, you know, they'd get the car back each year, but I had the use of a car for four years. And the first year I didn't have a driver's license, so I could not use the car. And my dad's car was broken down. And I said, dad, take my car. I, I can't even use it. And he refused to take my car. Because he said, everybody in Buffalo always said, I pushed you because I wanted, you know, to live off you or whatever. I'm never taking one thing from you. And he, wow, he okay. stuck to that. He never did. It yeah. sounds like he's he's certainly installed some very strong values in you from an, from an early stage. Is that is that something as you've then gone through your playing career, your coaching career, you're now the director of IMG? Is, is that something that you find yourself fallen in line with your dad and his values and what he taught you or do you find that you've rebelled against that and gone a different route um i have a little bit of both i think in some ways look i left home at 13 um and in some ways i raised myself yeah. from that point on because i came to the voluntary tennis academy, but there was not such a thing as the voluntary tennis academy. I was actually Nick sometimes gets the story wrong, and I don't know how he does, but I was the first student. Um, he was the head pro at the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort, and the only reason I ever met Nick, I'd never heard of Nick, I didn't know who he was. The owner of the Colony Beach and Tennis Resort in Florida was from Buffalo, and so I had a group of men tennis players that I had been that I played tennis with in Buffalo at that stage. And they were going on a tennis vacation in December and they took me and they took me to the colony. Nick saw me play, said, I got a school that gets out at noon. You can come stay with me. And he had two good players, Mike De Palmer and another kid um, that were three years older than me and that, you know, were top in the nation in the U S. So I had a couple of good players to play with. And I then went to Kalamazoo which is where our nationals are. And I talked to the top 20 kids in the nation and said, we got a place with a school with gets, lets us out at noon. In those days, there was no homeschooling. There was no such thing. Yep. So you have to go to school till four o'clock in the afternoon. So, um, and most of us lived in the Northeast or Midwest where the winter was difficult to get courts in those days. So I got most of the top 20 kids in the nation to come to the Academy. And that's how it, that's actually how it started. And, and Nick yep. was able to get, publicity from having all the best kids in one spot and he got sports illustrated article and this tv show called 2020 that did a special on him and all of a sudden then we started getting paying customers because that was the other thing nick did that was pretty amazing was he had 20 kids all free wow. at the beginning um and he had them staying at different coaches house i lived in nick's house eventually nine girls and me it was okay <laughs> i suppose <laughs> You did okay out of that one, huh? I mean, yeah, I, was, yeah. I didn't have a lot of competition, obviously. <laughs> yeah, because I asked when I, when Nick came on the podcast, which was which was an experience in itself, you know, speaking to Nick for half yeah. an hour. And I, I asked Nick the question, and, I, and I'll be honest, I didn't get an answer from him on it. But what always, what you might be able to give me a better answer than this, and, and it, you already have given me a little bit of an answer. Nick Boliteri at the time wasn't a name. So, so when we, when Rafael Nadal sets up the Rafael Nadal Academy, there's kind of instant PR, there's instant, globally, there's a name that's going to attract. Whereas Nick starting that from scratch. So, so from what you're saying, you bringing those players in, that was, that was the start, I guess, that then was, did he then have an investor that came in to, to help things get, get going or how, how was that financed in, in the first place? So the beginning part, I don't know how it was financed, to be honest. Um, those 20 that came, they were, as I said, he had the Colony Beach 
Mission Tennis Resort was a giant tennis resort. It was the number one resort in the U.S. And there was a big staff. So each staff member had to keep two or three of the kids. And then Nick had, as I told you, at some point, at one point, Nick had 10 at his house. Yeah. Um, and from there, he bought a motel. Once the people started coming and paying, he bought a motel. They had another club where we would play. And then eventually an investor came and gave him two and a half million, just gave him to build the place where we are now. Um, okay. that was probably two or three years after, after I got there. Yeah. And so I got there in 78 and I brought everyone for that 78, 79 school year. Okay. Um, and then by 80, he had gotten the two and a half million and, and sort of started the place where we are now. So age 16, you were already doing the director's role at the Academy. It's funny. Age 14, actually. Age, age 13 age or 14. Yeah, I got here at 13 and, and I played the 16 and under nationals when I was 13. And that's those are the kids that I sort of got to come. Yeah. They were all a bit older than me. It was Paul Anacone was one of them, a couple other players, Pablo Raya, Rodney Harmon. You would know all of them maybe, but you know, mo- many of them made it to the top 75 in the world or so. And why, why would you, so as good as you were, you've come in, you've revolutionized the forehand, you're, you're beyond your years, you've picked up your first world ranking age 15, you've won a match at US Open when you're 16, you know, you're, you're very clearly on path to be one of the greatest players in, in the world. Why was it that you took a chance on, on this guy? What was it about Nick that attracted you to him? Um... Okay, so I told you earlier, my, my dad was from Spain. Yep. So when I was 12, first of all, when I was 12, I actually beat two guys with an ATP ranking in a money tournament in Schenectady. I made the finals of a money tournament. I had more power than men because I was taking a full cut at my forehand that other people were still just sort of continental gripping, you know, moving the ball around, chip and charge type of, type of style. Um, so obviously the Spanish Federation was interested in me. So I went to the U S open. Um, they took me to the U S open when I was 12. I met Manuel Arantes who'd won the U S open the year before. Um, and I sort of met the Spanish Federation people and they were going to send me to Spain. My dad was going to send me to Spain. I didn't like, I didn't speak Spanish. He didn't teach me Spanish. And I don't know, the guys that came that I met were smoking and old and smelly. And I was like, I'm not moving to Spain. I can't, like, it was too much for me as a 12 year old. So I kind of balked at that situation and I didn't want to, I didn't want to make that move. I then go to that vacation. I told you about the colony and the guy who gave Nick, two and a half million dollars was there when I came and he took a liking to me um, right away. And he ended up giving me an account at the colony where I could just write his name and, and whatever I wanted, I could. So I'm 13, I'm sitting on the beach because the colony was right on the beach and you know, the Gulf of Mexico sitting on the beach. I have a strawberry daiquiri in my hand <laughs> and I'm going Spain with the smelly guys and the smoke or Florida and the beach and strawberry daiquiris and signing this guy's name to whatever I want. I'm going to Florida. Um, so I went home and told my dad, I'm moving to Florida and it really didn't at the time did not have much to do with Nick so much as okay. my situation. Um, so I went back and I told my dad, I'm moving to Florida. My dad said, no, you're not. Um, I said, I'm either moving to Florida or I quit tennis. He said, okay, you quit tennis. I said, okay, I didn't play for about three days and my dad couldn't take it and go to Florida. Um, (laughs) That's basically how I got to Florida. Um, The one thing that did attract me to Nick was I had already told you that my father only told me how much I stunk. Nick told me how great I was all the time, which I needed my dad telling me I stink, but I liked obviously hearing that I'm not so bad. Um, so it was sort of, it was a nice 
nice balance when I, when when Nick got involved, and that was the main, really the main thing. I also wouldn't have turned pro when I was 16, and as it turned out, if it hadn't been for Nick, um, because he. I played an exhibition match against Eddie Dibbs and Eddie Dibbs was ranked six in the world when I was 15 and I beat him. And in one set exhibition, it didn't mean anything to Eddie, but Nick got super excited. And so that's it. You're turning pro because if you're in those days, nobody turned pro McEnroe made semis of Wimbledon and then went to Stanford. for That's one right. Year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's sort of like you don't turn pro. And that was my thought too. I'm going, to college and as it turned out my best couple of years would have been the years that i was still playing had i not turned pro that i was playing juniors and i would have played college because you know when i was 19 i got sick with mono and and i played with it a little too long and ended up having to spend by the time i got diagnosed my spleen was enlarged i ended up being three months in bed and then when i started playing again i just i I was never the same from that point on so um so, so what age level. did you play what so what age did you play to in the end professional i played to 29 but i was horrible right, for okay. the last 10 years at least horrible in my mind i stayed ranked i don't know from 20 to 60 in the world for the next eight or nine years but it was it was the word i'm proud of myself because i hated hated the way i was playing my game was set up perfectly to hit a winner forehand once i got you to hit it about chest high and i lost that shot and so i had it i had to overspin to keep it in which got rid of me hitting winners so i became so i sometimes give this analogy of of different type of competitors there's a, a lion and a rat the lion is you have all the weapons in the world you're you're ferocious, you're scary, but a lion's not used to having someone stand up to them. If an animal turns back on the lion, the lion's, whoa, what, this guy's nuts. You're supposed to run away and just die for the lion. A rat is someone that finds a way to survive no matter, or, you know, nuclear holocaust, you're still going to be the one in the end that comes and finds a way. Um, And I was kind of a lion when I was on the way up and hitting my forehand. When I lost my forehand, I had to turn into a rat. And I was a decent rat. I, I fought, I ran, I put the ball in, I made you beat me. Um, but I hated playing that way. So, you know, I do try to get kids now to, to embrace being a rat sometimes and stealing a few points, Yeah, but they don't like when I call them a rat. (laughs) I I, I like the analogy a lot. The, the, The other thing, Jimmy, that jumps into my head is I can picture you now. I can I can see this little kid ripping forehands. Everyone else is playing like Rod Laver. And at some point, I guess, other people have picked would have picked up on that. You know, so is at what point in your career did all of a sudden you be like, shit, everyone else is now starting to play like that? And I guess my next question on that is: did a coach, somebody like Nick, steal that idea and then start passing it on to the rest of the students a hundred percent nick did that yes nick actually tells the story how i came out of a little volkswagen because it's true my dad drove me in a volkswagen beetle to florida um dropped me off and nick saw me hitting a forehand and he brought all his coaches to watch and he said that's the voluntary forehand he still tells that story but that was actually the areas forehand, <laughs> um, but he did teach. He did see it, and the one thing Nick did that differently than everyone else when I was growing up, up until Nick saw me, everyone would say he can never swing that hard under pressure. His arm's going to fall off. He's too too little to to play to compete. You know, with pros, blah blah blah. There were all these negatives, and Nick was the opposite opposite he saw it and said wait that's that's different and that's how everyone should be hitting basically so nick immediately started doing it and it did not take long for everyone else to be doing it as well and and the other thing that was a bit annoying to me was i i happened to play in the transition from wood rackets to mid-size rackets and my forehand still to this day when i hit with a wood racket it's perfect 
it's the midsize racket. I didn't figure out until now. And with the new string, I can hit it in now because the strings actually make the ball come down without me having to force it down. Um, but when I switched to the midsize, like everybody you have to, at some point, my form was going long, 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 whenever I tried to smash it. Um, it was better with the wood. So I kind of got a little unlucky in a sense that that transition happened and it was a pretty, you know, you know, it helped bigger players that were somewhat less skilled than me to have the bigger rackets. Um, you know, so that, that part was a little, a little annoying. And do you think that contributed to, you talked about your, your challenging, I wish I had a challenge in nine years of being between 20 and 60 in the world, but <laughs> it, you know, but I guess it, it is all relative when you were as high as you were. Did, did some of that contribute that mental almost difficulties that you had to overcome that all of a sudden, maybe if you hadn't gone to this tennis academy, maybe everyone else wouldn't have started hitting with the same forehand. You could have kept your own little secret, you know, no, did any of those no, things no, no. in your head or not really? No, the one thing, the reason, one of the reasons that, that my career didn't, I think I would have possibly gotten to number one if I had continued wanting to be number one and believing I would be number one. So I lost both of those things when I had, I got sick with mono, as I told you, I'm three months in bed. I had time to reflect, obviously. And I went, I stayed at home and my mom had a scrapbook and I'm reading all these articles that I've never read about, you know, me. She had just a scrapbook of my stuff. And I had two horrible thoughts. Um, first one was if I never do anything else in tennis, I've already done great. Um, that was the first horrible thought. And the second one was, and this one was worse. I said, I don't want to be number one in the world anymore because number one in the world to me is more famous than I am comfortable with. I want to be able to go to a movie and no one knows who I am. So I ended up saying to myself, I want to stay five because you make a bunch of money at five and some people know you. So occasionally you can have your ego stroked, but not the general public. Um, and once you sort of stop striving in this sport, in any sport, I guess, in any part of life, people are going to pass you, even if you're just trying to, and, and it made me more almost defensive. I was always going for it. And it's a, what you think what your mind says is what happens. That's the one thing I've, I've recognized. So for instance, when I won Rome, um, that was the biggest tournament in the end that I won in singles. When I won Rome, I remember thinking, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's true. I remember thinking, I'm going to act like I'm excited, but I don't care at all because I'm going to win like 10 French opens. So why do I care about, why do I care about Rome kind of um, thing? And that's why I didn't surprise myself. There were no, I knew I was going to be winning. So I didn't get tight in the finals of Rome or because I'm going to win 10 French. I'm going to be number one in the world. This stuff, none of this stuff matters really um, was, was my thinking at the time. And then when I'm trying to stay five, I'm like, I gotta, gotta defend Rome or, you know, whatever it is. And, and so it just sent me, downhill from that point on the leaf the leaf it's it's incredible i remember playing um playing leighton hewitt and i actually played him in an under 14 tennis europe event in the semi-finals of the consolation <laughs> so, okay. so i mean neither of us are setting the world alight we're in the consolation and i'd never come across an individual who I guess belief and arrogance are too, you know, you never quite know where it is, but this kid, I mean, he wasn't very good yet. He acted as if he was the, the bomb, you know, he really did. He was granted. He was a year younger than me. And I remember coming off that court after winning that match, thinking like, who was this kid? And, and I ended up then following him, watching his, his doubles, watching the next week's singles. And, and it was only, I think, 18 months later that he beat Andre Agassi in Adelaide, in Adelaide you yeah. know, and, and it was the first time. And certainly when I reflect that I saw that complete inner belief 
that just like that nothing was going to stop him from going where he was going to go. And, and that's what's coming through loud and clear from yourself as well, Jimmy, that, that must be quite a special, but almost maybe dangerous place to be. Uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting thing because you do need it. I think, I think yeah. anyone that's making it to those highest levels have, has to have had that um, a little bit. You just have to have that belief. I do. I do try to, it, because people tell me I was cocky, obviously um, in those days. And I never thought that I was cocky. I just thought I'm going to outwork you. I'm going to outdo whatever it is. I'm going to be the one that finds the way, um, to get to this spot that I want to get to. Um, so that's why I had that confidence in the end. And one of the things that drives me nuts nowadays is I see, I, I, I like to give this example of to the kids here at IMG Academy when I'm, when I'm working with them. Um, when I played, I was only trying to do, I was trying to make things as difficult as I could on myself so that I could keep improving. So I told you Pablo Araya was one of the names I mentioned. He ended up getting to maybe 30 in the world at his best ranking. He was three years older than me. The first, when I first moved to Florida, he was not in the Academy, but he lived in Florida. I played him in the finals of a, of the first tournament that I played here. And in those days, tiebreakers were nine point tiebreak, first to five win by one. So in the finals of the first against Pablo, four on the tiebreak in the first set, I hit a winner forehand that was in by a foot. He calls it out. I go, what are you talking about? And he doesn't respond to me except to put his arms in the air and shake his butt in a circle and go, oh, And he just danced it. The circle saying Olay, which my brain exploded and I lost 7662. And then the next time we played two or three weeks later in the finals of the next tournament, and it's four on the third, I'm serving. And he says, hey, hey. And I look up and he points at me and puts his hand very far down to say, hey, you're really short. And then as if he's stepping on me and goes, um, and it worked. He beat me 6-4. And then he ends up coming to the academy a few weeks later. And uh, kids nowadays would say, I don't want to play that guy. He cheats. He's making fun of me. Yeah. And the difference was I asked the coaches, I want to play with him as often as I, as I can, because he's gotten to me mentally. He's, he's in my head and I need to get stronger mentally. So I, I sort of always was embracing the thing that I thought was difficult so that it would that I was uncomfortable with so that I could keep getting better um, because I knew I wasn't where I wanted to be yet, but I was, I knew I was going to do whatever it took to get there. So, you know, that's the thing that today's kids, as we were talking a little bit, they want instant gratification um, and they don't want to have, they don't want to deal with the difficult things, which in the end is what makes you stronger. And that, that brings the big question up that I think if, if we've got the exact answer to this, you'll make a lot of money, but what is it that breeds that inner belief and what is it that breeds that mental toughness? I think for me, and this is where I can't teach you, I had a bit of an advantage in that I had sort of a revolutionary stroke. So when I was playing in the 12 and unders and those age groups, I wasn't losing many games forget matches. I was, you know, I was winning the finals of the national six, one, six, one, six, three, six, Oh, that kind of score. And I just got used to winning. So I just thought that's what I do. I win. And as I played on the tour, when you have that confidence, when you've won enough, even when I first came on the tour, my first 10 tie breaks in the final set on tour, I was 10 and out. Um, And that's obviously I'm playing. We're even. You know, it's tie break in the final set. The guy's the same level as me. You're playing the same level as me that day. But I knew the end result was that I was going to win. And it wasn't necessarily because I thought I was better. It was, I might get lucky, but the end result is I always win in these situations. So I sort of just believed it. And I remember having this one moment at a tournament. I was playing a Spaniard named Juan Avendano. He was ranked 90 in the world. I'm 16 or 17. I hold serve at five all in the third to go up six, five in the third. 
And I swear to you, I, I, I looked at him, I looked at him on the changeover and I can see he's nervous and he's, you know, getting ready. And I'm, and I actually said in my head, look, he still thinks he has a chance. <laughs> this match is over. He just doesn't even know it. Um, and I broke him because of that thought. I just broke him there, seven, five in the third, because it was sort of, I'm, I'm going to win now. I got this worst case scenario tie break in the final set. Um, I think for me, it just came from winning, which is the other thing that drives me nuts now is kids just want to play players with a higher UTR than they have. And so they lose most of the time. And it's a habit. Get, it's a habit. You get used to losing. I, I got used to winning sort of. So, and I've heard a story that Jensen Brooksby, who's a new kind of American yeah. kid that he's won at every level at ridiculous percent is you know right from the start he's playing satellites he's winning he's playing challengers he's winning and now on the tour he comes out and he's winning um right away he's winning a ton of matches and supposedly his coach had him play all the time practice matches but he always won he always made sure he played someone he beat i don't know if that's the right answer either i think there's sort of a balance you got to win some and lose some because you learn from losing as well but sort of interesting that he you get that sense from Brooksby. I actually was commentating his matches in Washington when he made a run to the semis. It was the first time I saw him play, and his game was kind of unorthodox, and you don't see any flash really to it. And I just, when I looked at his record, I, I was saying after the first round, I go, well, Brooksby's going to win because he just wins. Yeah, he That's what he does. He wins. And you can see that he thinks he should win. He believes he's going to win, and that's why he wins. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's amazing, actually, how many times I'll, we'll have players will come to the academy out in Spain and I'll have a look at their record on the, on the ITF Junior tournament so, and they'll be 6 and 18 or 5 and 16. Or, you know, these sort of these sort of match schedules that, 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 that they seem to have. And I would say that as well. I always think a three win to one loss is quite a nice little development program. You know, if you're, but if you, yeah. if you're, if you're losing more matches than you're winning, you're, you're in trouble because the scar tissue that starts to build uh, in your mind. Exactly. It's very, very different. Yeah. Just so Jimmy, moving. I agree. You, you as a player, who we, who were your toughest opponents? Well, I really didn't like kick serve to my backhand serve in Bali. So Stefan Edberg was yep. no fun at all for me. Um, I didn't really like playing McEnroe too much because I played him the year, the year after I had mono was 84. And that was the year I was ranked five. And I was still, even though I was playing horribly, I was still winning a ton of matches just because of maybe what I'm, what we're talking about. I still have that sort of, I win feeling, but I was terrible. And that year McEnroe was great. That was the year McEnroe only lost a couple of matches and maybe, finals of the French and I played him three or four times that year and that was I wasn't in the same area code as him. he was taking my first serve bunting it deep into the corner and coming in every point and so that was that was I never got a rhythm I hated playing McEnroe because I also happened to play him the most times the year he was unbelievable yeah. um yeah those are that, those were the two main guys because and Agassi, I didn't enjoy playing Agassi after he got faster. So Agassi was, he grew up here at the academy. Nick would always make me practice with him when I was ranked high and he was a kid. And Courier was here. David Wheaton was here. There were a few other juniors, a couple juniors you wouldn't know. Chris Garner was a top junior and he was very steady. And I wanted to practice with him. Nick was always putting me with Agassi. And I, I asked Nick one time, what, what is, why do you like this kid so much? He, he makes one ball and misses three. And Nick said, yeah, but the one ball he makes is unbelievable. And it's true. He's hitting every ball as hard as he could. Yeah. And I, but I was like, it's not practice for me because it's yeah. he either hits a winner or three balls out. And I played Andre. We played the first time we played on the tour. I beat him in straight sets. Um, he'd never taken a set from me his whole life. He's now ranked 30 in the world. It's the end of 87. We practice maybe in October, November. I beat him again. 
And the reason I beat him is because he'd always hit the ball better than I did. He was cleaner, took it earlier, but I had a really good forehand on the run and he would get me on the run with a forehand and then still try to hit a winner on the next ball when he wasn't quite in position, when I'd hit a pretty good ball on the run and he'd miss that one all the time. So that's why I won. I beat him again at the end of 87 in practice. He comes to me after the match and he, after the practice and he goes, I'm going to go to Vegas. And when I get back, I'm going to be fast. And I go, yeah, yeah, whatever. So he went away to Vegas. He came back three months later in January. I don't think I ever got to set off him from that point on. Because wow. he was suddenly in position on the ball. It was a half step faster, but that was all he needed was that half step. So it can happen. You, you can make these developments. I think so. He definitely did it. I don't, you know, I don't know how, but he definitely did it. And, and Jimmy, the, I, when we start talking about Agassi, we're not talking about a million miles away from the modern game, I guess, that, that we see now, you know, and so obviously your career crossed over into that. What do you now see as, as the director of IMG, the biggest differences between the time you were playing and the time now and my second part to that question is, what do you see as the things that just don't change regardless of the era? Um, well, I mean, now it's everyone's bigger, faster, stronger. That's first off. Um, they have, I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated with today's game in some ways because everyone plays a fairly similar style. And everyone, and I think this is partly coaches' faults and academy's faults, is we're so focused on you as the player, and that's all the player is focused on and everyone around him is focused on the player, that we've lost a little bit of sight of what you're trying to do is win a match against somebody else. And sometimes you need to find a way to make the other guy play badly. Yep. Um, and... They don't, I don't think players do much of that. So for instance, Rafa Nadal on clay for all those years, everyone plays them from the baseline. They play their game. You're going to lose. The numbers tell you, you are going to lose. So let's do, do something different. Um, and a good example for me, similar style player was Thomas Mooster. I played Thomas Mooster. He was 104 or something on clay. And I played him on clay. My biggest weakness was a backhand up around shoulder height. He's a lefty that's hitting nothing but ball, you know, balls around my shoulder to the backhand side. So I go into the match saying, this isn't good for me. I'm, I'm in trouble. I wasn't a servant volleyer, but he returns in the fence just like Nadal does. So I said, I'm going to hit at least twice a game in the deuce court. He was also a lefty. I'm going to hit a serve about 66 miles an hour, but short and wide and serving volley. And if I just can touch the volley, I've won the point. There's no way he can get back from where I'm going to put him. And I ended up losing six in the third. It wasn't my game, yep. but I tried something. And, and that's, it drives me a little nuts today that players sort of, they're just going to play their game. And when it's not working, they're going to go ahead and lose. Yep. The other thing that's, Strange is I think they've lost a little bit of the ability. And, and part of this is because they hit the ball so hard. They've lost the ability to sort of finish at the net and have sort of instincts at the net. Like I can't believe how many defensive lobs get over today's pros. If someone's on the run and the racket's open, like how do you not know that's a lob coming? But I think today's players come in so little that they don't have instincts at the net. Part of that is because they hit so hard. If you serve 140 miles an hour, you can't get to the net. The ball's back at you before you've gotten two steps. And the approach shots, you know, in my era was sort of you move the guy, you get a short ball, you take it early, you make him hit a pass on the run. Today's approach shots are more, I'm going to hit a clean winner. And if you happen to touch it, you know, I'm going to be able to just knock off a simple volley. So, you know, that's, I'm still waiting. I'm waiting now for a, by the way, just throwing it out there because I have one kid that I wanted to do this. He was a two-handed backhand and he switched to a one. 
so hard to return serve. I think with a one-handed backhand, it's why two-handed backhand to me is, is what you should be doing nowadays as a kid um, because return to serve is such a huge part of the game. So I tried to get that kid to return two hands, but play one if he wanted to play yeah. one. Um, and I yeah. feel like that's got to be the next thing. So I'm going to do that at some point, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, well, we've got, that's where I, I think Brooksby does stand out. Not, not the two and the one-hander, but he looks like he plays to make his opponent play worse. Yeah, a, a little bit like, and I watched Murray, Andy play play this week, and you know he's given all these players a real hard time right now. He's got a metal hip for God's sake. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he he almost found his way through Zverev the other day by just giving him a lot of crap. You know, putting the ball where he didn't want the ball to be. You know, and I think unfortunately it is a little bit of a dying breed. You know, but I think. You know, you you at IMG, you've got enough players coming through those ranks. You know, we need to get a few more gems. I'll try. I'm trying to teach him. I I, I use my little brother as a uh, – so my little brother had a brain tumor when he was five, and it was a slow-growing brain tumor that was supposed to kill him when he's 15, about, and in his teenage years. And it was inoperable when he was five. So – my dad being a crazy, he's now crazy because my little brother's seven years younger than me. So my dad's already a crazy tennis parent at this point. And he makes him play tennis anyway. So my brother's attitude in life was, I just want to have fun. I have 10 years to live. I'm going to enjoy every minute of it I can. That's, that's what I'm going to do. So the only enjoyment he found out of tennis was pissing off an opponent. Yeah. So he would start every match hitting moon balls. And if the guy would yell, you push her, he'd go <laughs> giggle and just hit moon balls. Yeah. Um, when he played me, if I played with me, he would take every ball and come in. Serve volley, take my serve and come in. No rhythm, no rallies. I would go, come on, let's get a rally. And he just come in on everything. With that attitude, never caring about his game. By the way, they, they could operate when he was 12. So they took the tumor out and he's still alive now. He's Amazing. 50. Um, but he got an ATP ranking, never caring about his game. He still, he didn't try to be a tennis player. He, the only reason he played still was he wanted to go see the world. So he would play satellites. He'd teach, make enough money to go play an Australian satellite or go play Hawaii satellite to go to the nice sort of areas that he wanted to see. And while he played, he got ATP points, just pissing off his opponent. Not really. Not having a game himself. I'm saying you need both. You need to work on your game, figure out the shot you like to finish points with, and that's the patterns that you want to to create to get that shot. But sometimes that doesn't work, and then you got to bring my brother's sort of style into it a little bit. What's what's your brother's name? Kevin. So I'm going to start Kevin Tuesdays at the Academy. You know, when we do our (laughs) points. Yeah, that's good. Your job is to... Drive the other guy nuts. That's, That's it. Not. You're going to be like Kevin Arias. This is it's, yeah. wait, I'm I'm going to name a drill. I'm going to take some video footage and I'm going to send I'm going to send it to you. You know That's what? Awesome. I it, do want to see that. That's awesome. It's it's I brilliant. Start that here. Actually, I like that. I know that you only have a few minutes. I, I do want to ask one thing now that you're director of IMG and to move, I guess, a little bit more into the business side of things, you know, and, and we, we've talked about developing tennis players. We've talked about some of the frustrations that, that, that are in the modern modern world, instant gratification. How, how does an organization as big as IMG marry up this hundreds of not just tennis players but hundreds of athletes and and still keep that level of development at the absolute forefront because i think that's the the real challenge for tennis academies uh that is i mean obviously you need staff first of all to be able to to structure the program and one of the great things we have here is we do have the entire package of what what we're trying to do is sort of create the feeling of what the players on tour have is a team around you. Um, so we have fitness, um, tennis specific fitness guy. We have Johnny Parks, who's a great fitness guy and he was a great tennis player. So he knows exactly what the kid, the kids need. Um, we got mental conditioning, we got nutrition, we got leadership. We have all these things trying to help round out the student. And then 
from the tennis side of things. Since I've gotten here as director, I am a believer in competing, learning how to compete, learning how to win. So I am making them play matches. I felt like that's one of the things that academies have fallen short on. As I said, as we've decided we're going to focus on, I still want to work on your game and your strokes, but there's a certain point in time when you're needing to learn how to win and you're learn, learn, have to learn how to compete. So I'm making my kids compete. Um, it's an interesting sort of, conundrum because everyone thinks that's what they want the parents when i tell them we're making them compete and they're playing further utr and for whatever reason utr today's kids is like (gasps) in finals every time they think it's the most important thing that they've ever done in their lives um so they think they want that and then when it actually starts happening and i'm making them play those matches they they don't always handle it so well so um because we play those matches and the way it's set up and the, and the coaches that I have, there's a lot of one-on-one work and a lot of match play work. So, so it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like it's a big Academy, even though they're 200 kids. Yeah. And, and, and on that point, being a, a, an Academy in America, but there was a fascinating article interview with Riley Opelka the other day, which I'm sure you, I'm sure you would have seen, but Riley basically got asked the question, are the Americans going to catch the Europeans up? You know, it was after the Lever cup drubbing that, that mm. happened. And he said, no, no way. The Americans, they're so far away. will not catch the Europeans up, especially not the Russians. They're going to dominate for years and years. Um, what's your take on that? Well, was his reasoning because of culture or was his reasoning because... His reasoning was that tennis is just too far down the pecking order in 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 america you know tennis is a sport you know it's it comes second best to american football to baseball to basketball to to all of these other options so so the best athletes aren't being filtered into tennis whereas he felt how good he knows this i don't know but he felt that in europe that that actually the 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 tennis is a much bigger sport and, and actually you get kind of prioritized athletes going going into the sport of tennis that was that was my take from the interview um but he was he was quite condemning of us being able to have some of the best players in the world i mean look we have enough people that we should be able to have good enough athletes at some point down the line that decide they like tennis and and can play tennis so i don't think it's from an athletic standpoint i think it's It's the combination of, to me, tennis is the hardest sport um, because it is a skill that takes hours and hours and hours um, to perfect that skill. Years, not just hours, but years to perfect the skill of all the different aspects of tennis. And on top of that, you now have to be a great athlete. I think Back when I played, you probably didn't have to be a great athlete. You could just have a lot of skill or you could be a great athlete and you'd sort of be able to probably make your way onto the tour. Now you kind of have to have both. Um, But I think there's enough people on the athletic side that could be great tennis players that try to play tennis. But I think for the most part in America, we're, we're softer a little bit. And Riley Opelka said one of the funniest things to me when I was, was I was sitting, he was playing John Isner in Atlanta a couple of years ago and I'm kind of friends with Isner. So I'm sitting in Isner's player box and Opelka had dominated the match, but no one broke serve. So it was seven, six, six, seven, Opelka serving five, six in the third, but he's the only one who's had chances to break the whole match. Um, and all of a sudden 15 Ollie double faults twice. Opelka. So he gets down double match point, five, six in the third. He comes to get his towel, which was literally right in front of me because he's seven feet tall. His head is right where my head is sitting in the stand. And I, he's saying over and over again, the same thing. He's just going, I should have played team sports. I should have played team sports, which was fantastic. I thought it was hilarious. He then went to hit two aces and got out of that game and ended up winning, you know, tie break in the third. So kind of justice was done because he was the better player that day. Um, but it was just sort of interesting that that's what we're, 
we're missing that he was ready to give up already. I mean, yeah. he, he ended up finding a way, but I don't know. We're just softer at this point. The rest of the world is from, from the, especially as he was saying, sort of the Eastern Europe to me is, is mentally, they're not going to give up. I'm going to move us into our quick fire round that we have to do. I promise you it's quick. Are you ready? Okay. All right. I'm always ready. Your favorite Grand Slam? U.S. Open. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Should there be a medical timeout or not? Well, that's that's sort of for cramping, no. Um, for cramping, there shouldn't be. But if you've you know, sprained your ankle, yeah. Clay courts or hard courts? Not clay. How many Grand Slams will Novak Djokovic win? <laughs> 22. Oh, two, only two more. Yeah, I think he's... I'm worried about... Eh, we'll see. I, got, I, I could change that after Australia, obviously, <laughs> if I see him looking like the Djokovic of you know the last few years. But I didn't like the way he played at the US Open. I don't... He was nervous the entire time. He was losing his balance. He's, I don't know. The young guys are getting close. They are getting, they we'll are. see. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Top spin or slice? All right. Actually, slice, because I didn't have a good one, and now I do. So it's, <laughs> it's more fun. PTPA or not? Not. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Um, I don't have many, but maybe the catching of your toss should be a fault. Pat Rafter wouldn't have enjoyed that one. Many players <laughs> wouldn't have enjoyed that one, but it's just sort of, if they're trying to speed things up, that's, and you, you're in control. If you can't do that, then, you know, that's a fault. I'm with you. I'm with you. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? I don't know. Novak Djokovic, bring him on, ask him how many he's going to win and see if you, you know, don't tell him I said two more. You've got to be careful because whoever you say you're signing up to get, it's a passing, it's a uh, passing of the battle. Oh. Well, that, if I had known that rule, I, you know, I don't know. I'd have to bring my brother or something. Well, I'll, I'll reach out about Novak and let's All see, right. if, let's see if we can get know. him on. That but, works. Jimmy, what, what star you've been. Thank you so much for your time. It's been been brilliant. I could have chatted for a lot longer, but I, I, I want to be respectful of your time and what you've got to do for the rest of the day. But thank you for coming on and good luck. My pleasure. Take care. Good seeing you. Thanks, Dan. As always, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And I really do hope that you enjoyed listening to Jimmy as much as I did talking to him. And what a fun guy he was. Yeah, it was another one of those episodes where an hour is just not long enough. I kind of feel we've just scratched the surface of all the like amazing stories that he's got. And what a great storyteller. Yeah, they seem to be in that in that era. <laughs> they just seem to tell stories so much better. And I think... That... I mean, it, when you've got stories with Agassi and Edberg and McEnroe, I think it must come a little bit easier. <laughs> What than Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, <laughs> yeah, Murray. True, true. So I, I think it's I think it's just an it's an era thing. But I think it all links in. We're, we're starting to see a lot of differences coming through from the different eras. You know, I think one of them certainly is the the storytelling. You know, but go back to that day, these guys were creating memories. You know, they weren't sitting on their phones. Right now, kids could be, I guess, anywhere in the world sitting on their phones, playing their games, doing doing their social media. Whereas I think the creativity of mind was maybe a little bit better in that era. And I certainly took quite a few things from him. And, and one of the big things, and it was, I hope it came through on the episode because it was really quite emotional when I was talking to Jimmy on it because I felt he really opened up with that emotion around his, his dad and, and obviously he was such a key relationship to him you know but the fact that unfortunately his his father passed away and he never got that gratification he never got that praise that he was so 
desperately seeking and, and, and it almost feels as if that was his driving force to seek the praise and the gratification from his dad. And yet you could argue all of his success has come from that relationship and that drive that it's created. And I think you you were right in that, you know, the message that he, he did leave him was probably the biggest compliment that he could give him. Um, you know, we talk all the time on, on the podcast about developing resilience, developing grit, developing, you know, that inner belief, motivation. Um, and I think as a parent, you wouldn't advocate not giving your child praise but then it does seem to have, you know, him constantly seeking it, it does seem to have given him that that drive to push push on. Yeah, and, and, and I can I can certainly relate to that. And I mean, I would say I definitely got some praise from my parents. It wasn't that I didn't get praise, but there was certainly a driving force there that I had when I was growing up playing tennis that I was just, I was searching the well-dones. You know, I was searching the pats on the back. You know, I was searching my parents being proud of me. And, and I think that's quite a powerful force within itself that that maybe we can take for granted and, 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 and not quite realise how how strong that is. And I go back not to, to not to peg everything on mobile phones, but if again if we go back into those days there was less opportunity to get praise. Now, nowadays, I think it's quite easy to send a text message, really proud of you, you know, well done. Whereas, you know, back in those days, you would obviously often go on tour for three, four weeks, and you might have two or three phone calls if you're lucky, if you find a payphone, you know, so the, so, the, so the connection between your loved ones and those in your life wasn't as daily. Um, so I think it probably built up some of those emotions. The the one that I really, again, as we're on, on the line of parents, I do think nowadays, and I guess a bit of a challenge I would have for ourselves as parents, for uh, myself as a tennis coach, for, for players out there, you know, are we protecting our kids too much nowadays? You know, he talked about the story, which I love. I won't even try and make the noise that he made of the of, of that guy who pretended to squash him on the floor. But ultimately, he he wanted to take that on head on. You know, a little boy making fun of him. He can't get a win over him. How much? How many of us out there now, as parents or as coaches, would potentially avoid that situation rather than saying, "No, no, no"? I he's come to the academy get me on court with him. You know, I want to I want to deal with the uncomfortable situation. And and that's where real learning happens. That's where resilience is built and 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 I think we are guilty nowadays of avoiding those challenging situations. And as a parent trying to protect your child as well from those situations. <laughs> Which I think is a very natural mm -hmm. way to be as a parent, of course, but how many times do we see parents pulling their players out of tournaments because they're not happy with who they've got to play in the draw you know how many times do we do we have parents or players saying I don't want to be in the squad with little Jimmy or little Billy or or little Sarah or little Emma because actually they make them feel uncomfortable or they they're mean to them you know and I think that is a little bit of a generation thing as well and that's one of the reasons I I love having these old timers and sorry Jimmy if you're listening I know I'm not that old but these old timers that come on and, and share that insight because you know the history of tennis is something that needs to, to stay close to all of our hearts we need to remember what's happened previously to get us to get us to this point and ultimately and, and ironically what I'm about to say here I think ultimately we all need to toughen up a little bit and that was ironically what he said about the US players as well that he felt the US tennis players weren't as tough as the Europeans. I feel like we almost need an expert on teaching resilience and grit to the younger players on the podcast next. That's an, another episode for sure. And there's still so much that we could talk about with this episode. Um, Jimmy, like we said earlier, is a, such an amazing storyteller. I love the Agassi story about getting half a step faster. And once Agassi had done that, he couldn't. Uh, Jimmy couldn't beat him again. Um, there's so many little nuggets to take away from the episode. What are the main messages that you're taking away from your chat? I think my first one would be, I'd love to go out to dinner with Jimmy. I think yeah. that would be the, the first thing to take from it because 
Yeah, just some of the stories he did tell. And like you say, I don't think we even scratched the surface. No. Could you <laughs> Could you imagine, you know, all of those stories he's got about Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, mm. Nick Politeri, you know, so many, so many stories. So that would be my first thing. I think the second thing was just the ease at which he spoke about being world number one when he was younger. You know, how normal that was in his world and almost what a failure he felt he'd been to only be number five yeah. in the world. And and the little story that he told about winning winning Rome, so winning Rome Masters Series event and almost having to fake being happy <laughs> because it just, well, of course I'm going to win Rome, but I'm going to go on and win 10 Grand Slams. And I think, I think that would be my first message I would take, would just be the power of the mind, you know, that you, you absolutely can be what you think you can be, you know, so, so dream big and really dream big. Don't just, you know, don't have fake, you know, don't fake it, but just, you know, have those, have those strong dreams and have those strong beliefs of what you can do. And I think my second one, which is maybe a little bit more complex, is, is how short the career is. And how and how quickly the career a career can change, you know. And I've certainly seen it at a slightly lower level, but I've seen it with players who have been 280 in the world, 250 in the world, and that's been their moment. And maybe they've had a bad few weeks at the wrong time. They've got a bad injury, illness at the wrong time, and quite quickly they've lost momentum. And I don't think we can ever take anything for granted in this sport. It, it really is a sport of all of the stars aligning <laughs> at the right time. And even as confident as much belief that Jimmy had, he didn't make it to the to the to the stage that he felt he was going to. And he and he talks about you know when he got mono when he was nineteen twenty years old and never quite got back you know when you're on the wrong track in this sport it's hard to change back to momentum so I think there's two those two little messages I know I dragged the second one out a little bit <laughs> I was just gonna say but it just shows like we were saying there's so much we can talk about just from this one episode <laughs> so many so many but I'm not gonna keep you any any longer. But we will be back, as always, next Tuesday with our next amazing guest. Watch this space for who it is. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>